Church, you can be seated. It's great to see you this morning. Worship team, fantastic job. We've got the best worship team going. They're phenomenal. So I want to start this morning by making a confession. Because as James tells us in the good book, we are to confess our faults one to another. So I'm going to put that into practice this morning. Whenever I'm speaking to a few people in this church, and I'm going to name them, my mind is a little bit divided. When I'm talking to Delia, when I'm talking to Gareth and Naomi and Charlene, 87% of my brain is connected to that conversation. And the other 13% is just completely envious about how cool their accent is. It doesn't even matter what they're saying. Just by opening their mouth and emitting sound, they're 217% cooler than I am. It's just done. All right, good. Glad I got that off my chest. Now, I'm a very proud and grateful Canadian. I think this is a tremendous, beautiful country to be a part of. But I've always had this fascination and love for the UK and more specifically British culture. Now, it's important to note that we're not talking about levels of obsession where you'd walk into the front door of my house and see an 85-piece commemorative plate set of the Queen to greet you in the cabinet at the front door. If that was the case, we might be better off having an intervention this morning rather than a sermon. But there's a lot that I love and admire about England. First of all, just a fantastic flag. I know Shan has the boots, the Union Jack boots. They're great boots. You definitely should have worn them today. Um, I've owned many items of clothing, such as the shirt I'm wearing today with the Union Jack, and I will own many more. I'm just telling you that right now. Secondly, I'm a huge fan of British humor, really dry, really sarcastic. It's fantastic. I know that there's a group of uh, British comedians that I can go to every time, and they're going to deliver the goods. And third, nearly all of my favorite music comes from the UK. It's actually crazy. <laughs> we got an amen on the front row. Uh, it's crazy to think how much quality music, both past and present, has come out of this small section of the world. I spent so many formative years of my life listening almost exclusively to British music, it got to the point where I myself could not sing certain words in anything but a British accent. <laughs> that's horrifying. Um, that's the real confession this morning, actually, and that's, that one was tough to get out. Someone had to graciously pull me aside at one point and say, Dave, you're from Balzac, not London. When you sing words like heart, you really need to enunciate the R sound because you're Canadian. Horrifying. But luckily, this is a safe space when I can be real with you. So after growing up with this love of Britain, I was fortunate enough to spend a few days there myself when I was 23, and it was magical. Went to some amazing museums, took in a play at Shakespeare's Globe Theater, uh, went to some incredible bands every night, began a now lifelong love affair with fish and chips. But the highlight of my time there was this bike tour that uh, took us around to some of the hidden gems of the cities. And it was led by this really cool local guy who absolutely loved his city and was proud to show it off to visitors. And right there, I'm fully in. 
I'm drawn to people who are just bursting with passion about something. Um, it doesn't even really matter what the subject is. If you're passionate about it, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to learn. I've had great conversations with people from the soil conditions in central Saskatchewan to a, to a thesis-level defense given to me by a seven-year-old of which transformer would really win in a fight. So just by nature of this guy, passionate about something that I'm also passionate about, I knew it was going to be a great day. So we tour around the city, seeing things that I likely would have never stumbled upon if I was just by myself. And at one point, we stop in front of this old, beautiful hotel. And he turns to our group and starts recounting the tale of just the beating that London and other cities and towns across Britain took during World War II. Uh, in an effort to break Britain's spirits, to cripple its war production, and to force Winston Churchill and the British government to the negotiation table, the Nazis bombed the cities and ports uh, of the country for eight consecutive months, largely at night in a period called the Blitz. And for eight months, the Brits would wake up not knowing whether their homes had been reduced to rubble, whether their places of work were still standing, or whether their friends or family were still alive. Over 43,000 civilians were killed at that time, 70,000 injured. The port city of Hull lost 85% of its buildings. And even though those were incredibly difficult times, people kept going. They kept going to work. Uh, they kept living life. Our guide pointed to the hotel behind him and said that before the war, on weekends, there had always been dances for people to enjoy there. And with this huge smile and sense of pride, he said that during the Blitz, people kept coming to that hotel to enjoy nights out with their community. And when that air raid siren would go off, indicating that there was uh, imminent bombing coming, they'd simply close the blackout curtains of that ballroom, and they'd keep on dancing. He told us that this attitude of the British people, their refusal to be broken by the circumstances around them, came to be known as Blitz Spirit. And I've done a lot of reading on that topic in recent, uh, recent re years, recent months. And I came across this article by the BBC who interviewed a specialist on the topic. And she said, Although there was some panic and chaos in those first few nights, the term blitz spirits typifies two qualities that emerged, endurance and defiance. There was endurance in the face of an external danger. People were going through it together, putting up with eight months of constant bombardment. People were absolutely exhausted. But on the whole, there was very little panic. They went to work, went about their daily lives. And the other is defiance. There were no or very few calls for surrender. The morale didn't implode. Even if people were bombed out and had to go underground or leave London, they would come back to work. And I've had this concept of blitz spirits stuck in my head since then. This idea of a group of people living together with a collective attitude of endurance and defiance refusing to be broken by the circumstances that an enemy throws at them because of a shared vision of the life and the world that they were striving for. And I think that this attitude describes a lot of incredible movements in history from the British during this time to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his followers pushing for equality in the civil rights movement. And in my personal opinion, if it should describe any group, it should describe us as followers of Christ. I think it's easy for us to identify with the value of endurance. Uh, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, so we must let go of every wound that has pierced us and the sin that we so easily fall into. Then we will be able to run life's marathon race with passion and determination. 
for the path has already been marked out before us. We look away from the natural realm and we fasten our gaze onto Jesus who birthed faith within us and who leads us towards faith's perfection. His example is this, because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of God. But what about defiance? Is that a word that quickly comes to mind when we think about the defining features of ourself? Is that a word that people outside of our faith would use to describe who we are? It seems to me that people shy away from that word because of a connotation of disobedience. But actually, listen to how it's defined in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. A disposition to resist, a willingness to contend or fight. I'm going to read that again. A disposition to resist, a willingness to contend or fight. From where I stand, that description couldn't encapsulate who we should be as followers of Christ any better. If we aim for endurance and exclude defiance, I think we run the risk of simply living a life of faith in which we only focus on the finish line and simply holding on till we get to the end. Jesus tells us to live differently. When he teaches us to pray, he didn't instruct us to ask God to help us run out the clock down here until we could join him in heaven. No, he taught us to ask God for help to establish his kingdom on the earth to guide us in our mission to set things right in this life as he created it to be. That's not an easy prayer. That's a prayer that requires a willingness to fight against the things that push back against God's will on the earth. That's a prayer that requires defiance. Uh, I share a favorite verse with Pastor Eric, um, and it's John 10.10. And it says, Jesus says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I come to give you life and life overflowing. His very mission on earth was predicated on a fight. It was on defying the agenda of his enemy. So with that all in mind this morning, let's dig into our text. It comes out of Mark 2, 1 to 12, if you have your Bibles with you this morning. I'm reading out of the Passion Translation. And it says, Several days later, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and news quickly spread that he was back in town. Soon there were so many people crowded inside the house to hear him that there was no more room even outside the door. While Jesus was preaching the word of God, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man. But when they realized that they could not get even near him because of the crowd, they went up on top of the house and tore away the roof above Jesus' head. And when they had broken through, they lowered the paralyzed man on a stretcher right down in front of him. When Jesus saw the extent of their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, my son, your sins are now forgiven. This offended some of the religious scholars who were present, and they reasoned amongst themselves, who does he think he is to speak this way? This is blasphemy for sure. Only God himself can forgive sins. Jesus supernaturally perceived their thoughts and said to them, why are you being so skeptical? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are now forgiven or stand up and walk? But to convince you that the Son of Man has been given the authority to forgive sins, I say to this man, stand up, pick up your stretcher, and walk home. Immediately the man sprang to his feet in front of everyone and left for home. When the crowds witnessed this miracle, they were awestruck. They shouted praises to God and said, we've never seen anything like this before. So there's three aspects of defiance that I want to point out in this passage this morning. And the first is this. Defy the lies. And what lies are we talking about? The lies about who God is and what he's capable of. 
Let's read part of that passage again, but let me read, you from, uh, let me read to you from the account of Luke. One day, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof, took off tiles, and lowered the sick man on the mat down into the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now, it's important to realize who the Pharisees were. I think a lot of times we hear these names and titles uh, and ideas in Scripture, but because we don't live in that cultural context, we don't fully understand the significance. The Pharisees weren't the high priests in the temple. Instead, the Pharisees were a society of scholars and pietists who believed that worshiping God consisted of prayer and studying God's law. And for several different reasons, this group had a large popular following amongst the Jewish people. This group was believed by many to be experts of the very faith that lay at the heart of Jewish life. And it's really interesting that all four gospel writers make it explicitly clear that these influential religious men were adamant opponents of Jesus. And I love that Luke explicitly mentions in that passage that I just read that it just so happened that whenever Jesus was out and about, these fellows happened to show up too. And they just happened to show up with difficult questions intended to trap Jesus into revealing that he wasn't the son of God or breaking God's law. What a coincidence. So right away, that sets up some stakes for the man carrying their friend to Jesus. It was highly likely that if Jesus was around, the Pharisees were going to be around. And it was well known that these men rejected the claims that Jesus was the son of God. When they are confronted by his miracles, the Pharisees go to crazy lengths to try to explain it away, saying things like, he must be getting his power from the devil in order to carry out these miracles. And yet, these men carrying their friend accept whatever consequences await their social standing for defying the Pharisees' opinion of Jesus. Why is that? It's because they believe that Jesus is who he was said to be. But you know what? That's actually not enough. It's not enough for Jesus just to be God among us, and it's not enough that the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. That's not a good enough reason for them to carry their friend to Jesus. They also believed in his goodness and his willingness to help. If you weren't here last week to hear Pastor Eric's sermon on conduits, get the podcast. And if you were here to hear that message, get the podcast. Because you still need to hear it again and have it go through you again. I've been thinking on that term conduit a lot this week. And here's the thing about a conduit. It's just a hollow piece of plastic or metal with a bunch of wire in it if it's not connected to a real source of power. And a power that is ready and able and willing to flow. If we don't believe and actively live in the revelation that not only is God able to radically restore health and wholeness, but that he's a good father and that he actively wants to bring hope and healing and life into our situation, then we have no basis from which to fight. 
And sometimes the fight over that specific truth comes from external sources, like in this story from the Pharisees, or from people in our own life trying to actively pick apart our faith. I know I've had that experience. But I think just as critically, I think we need that defiance for the fight that rages on inside of ourselves. Sometimes that fight looks like doubt. But I think a lot of the time, or at least for me, it can look like apathy or laziness on my part, not to be an active participant in stoking the fire of the revelation of who God is. I love that metaphor that Fletch used at our Holy Spirit conference of a pilot light burning blue hot. And I know that I'm losing the fight of keeping that fire blue hot when I encounter difficulty or I know someone else going through difficulty. And my response isn't to go to God with that request and trust him enough to leave it with him. The Hebrew people were very intentional about this fight of remembering who God is and what he had done for them and would continue to do. They wove remembrance into the very rhythms of their life. For instance, God freed them from Egypt through just miraculous signs and wonders. And for a week each year, they celebrate what God did in that moment through Passover. And through Passover, they're remembering who God is and what he can still do for them. So what are we doing to help ourselves in the fight against the lies of who God is and what he is able and willing to do? The next point I want to make is defy what you see. When I read verse 2 about there being so many people crowded inside the house, I actually have a a visceral reaction to that description. It actually like legitimately makes me nauseous to read a group so packed into a house that there is no room. A large part of that is because two of my worst memories from childhood involve getting lost in a crowd or being caught up in a crowd. And there's going to be an amen off the front row from, from my mom when she almost lost the son in Costco. That's not, not a good day. The worry and the unpredictability of what could happen, the feeling of being pressed upon, and the fear of being separated from people I'm with and lost, getting lost as a result, are still things that pop into my mind when I'm in certain crowds. So when I try to put myself into the shoes of the men carrying their friend to Jesus, seeing this impassable mob of people, I think my first reaction would just be a sense of panic and dread, a very instinctual drive of, I need to get out of here right now. And I think my next reaction would have been profound sense of disappointment, to have gotten so close to bringing my friend to Jesus, but colliding with this impassable mob of people surrounding him. I think I might have thought, what if this was my shot to get my friend to Jesus and we missed it? Because remember, this is not in our present day. There's no posted schedule of Jesus' activities. There's no tour dates up on Instagram that you can say, we're going to catch him on that tour stop. But scripture actually speaks a lot about the power of perspective. In Corinthians 13, Paul says that now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. And he's talking about the reality that we will never see or understand in full in this life, but that we'll gain that full insight when we join God in heaven. We see the power of perspective in one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings 6. In that passage, Elisha's servant walks out of the place that they're staying and sees an entire army waiting to capture Elisha. 
He's utterly terrified, and he runs back to report to Elijah. And Elijah responds like this, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And Jesus sets for us the ultimate example of defying the need to see before acting in faith. When Thomas refused to believe in Christ's resurrection until he saw him, Jesus appeared to the disciples and said, Thomas, now that you've seen me, you believe. But there are those who have never seen me with their eyes, but have believed me in their hearts, and they will be blessed even more. Beyond that, time and time again, Jesus came across incredible need, whether that be incurable diseases or even death. In John 11, Jesus' dear friend Lazarus dies, and the perspective of the disciples and of Mary and Martha is despair, is one of hopelessness, and in Mary and Martha's case, anger at Jesus for waiting too long. But just like he had through the course of his entire ministry, when the people around him saw an impossible situation, Jesus saw opportunity. In verse 14, Jesus said to his disciples, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Because now you have another opportunity to see who I am so that you will learn to trust in me. Come, let's go and see him. So going back to our text this morning, these men could have given in to hopelessness, to the discouragement, to the impossibility of what they saw with their eyes. But in that moment, instead of acting on their physical sight, they chose to act on the vision of their faith, that just a word from Jesus could change their friend's life. Instead of focusing on the mess on the ground level, they lifted their eyes for a different perspective. Instead of even just getting stuck on the idea that the only way into a house is through a door or a window, they decided to expand their view of architecture and decided to install a complimentary skylight into the home of someone that they didn't know. I would encourage you this morning, if you're feeling stuck in life right now, if you're feeling scared, if you're feeling discouraged by the situations you see in your life or the life of the people you love, choose to fight the information that your eyes are presenting you. Choose to fight the idea that your situation looks impossible and replace it with the idea that your situation looks like an opportunity. It looks like an opportunity for God to show up and reveal who he is to you and to the people in your situation. And the third example of defiance I see is this, defy culture and fight for breakthrough. To this point, we've been talking a lot about the friends who are bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus. But it's important to realize that they're not the only defiant ones in the story. What about the man on the mat? In this time, there was a widely held belief that people who suffered with diseases, paralysis, blindness, and other incurable conditions were to blame for their pain and suffering. We read in John 9 about Jesus and his disciples passing a blind man, and the disciples saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And being so disabled in this cultural context was an incredible source of shame. It was a sign of not only am I physically less than the people around me, but I must be spiritually and morally less than everyone else to you. God is punishing me, and rightly so, because I'm to blame. But Jesus does something amazing. 
both in that passage and throughout the Gospels. He actually erases the shame of being someone who's broken, someone who's in need, someone who's looking for help. Listen to this. In John 9, Jesus responded, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Just past the story we've been looking at in Mark 2, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees' disgust at the people he spends his time with by saying to them, Who goes to a doctor for a cure? Those who are well or those who are sick? I've not come to call the righteous, but to call those who are sinners and bring them to repentance. I was uh, going through some really cool commentaries on on Mark 2, and William Barclay writes this about that passage, about uh, what Jesus just said. He says, The point of this verse is that the one person for whom Jesus can do nothing is the person who thinks himself so good that he does not need anything done for him. And the one person for whom Jesus can do everything is the person who is a sinner and knows it and longs in his heart for a cure. To have no sense of need is to have erected a barrier between us and Jesus. To have a sense of need is to possess the passport to his presence. That man on the mat had to defy the cultural belief that this condition was his fault and that it was what he deserved and he just had to live with it. Furthermore, he had to fight the urge to hide his shame and actually agree to be carried to Jesus. Think about it. Even if they made it through the door of that house, he would have had to been carried in front of a huge group of people who likely believed that his illness was the result of his sin or his parents' sin. That's actually a really brave decision to make to agree to be carried to Jesus. And what about his friends? They were faced with the same cultural belief about sin and illness as their friend. From that cultural standpoint, even if they were to hope that he would be healed, they would have had to deal with the issue of his sin by offering a sacrifice. And that wasn't a do-it-yourself activity. A priest needed to offer that sacrifice on their behalf to God. And furthermore, the very idea of being in God's presence and bringing their requests directly to God would have been such a foreign and countercultural concept. The temple was set up so that a thick veil separated God's presence in the, holies of holy, the Holy of Holies from where they were permitted to be in the temple. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies and only on the Day of Atonement once a year. And yet, we find these men so desperate for a need for a divine touch of healing for their friend, so full of faith that Jesus could transform his body, and just as importantly, full of faith that he was willing to transform their friend, that they were literally on a stranger's roof, tearing through the barrier between themselves and the healing presence of Jesus. What a contrast that is from their cultural spot to what they were doing in that moment. And check out Jesus' response. The Passion Translation says, When Jesus saw the extent of their faith, he forgave the, the man of his sins and healed his body. Another translation says, Impressed by their bold belief, Jesus forgave and healed the man. Let me tell you something, church. If at all in the Gospels as you're reading, you come across an instance of Jesus being amazed or impressed by something, I find it good practice to rewind, <laughs> read the thing that impressed Jesus, and then do it yourself. This is one of my favorite moments in the Gospels, and I was excited to preach on this passage today because in my view, this is the perfect example of why church matters. 
It's a picture of two groups in a powerful encounter with God. Someone who's honest and vulnerable and real about their desperate need for Jesus and engaged people who step into the situation and do everything they can to bring that person into the life-changing presence of God. That's what we do here. That's our purpose. And we fight that same fight against culture that the people in this passage fight. Well, our culture is slowly getting better at being honest and open with things like being honest about mental health difficulties. It's still a fight to be honest and vulnerable and say, I'm not doing okay. I'm struggling. I can't make it on my own. It's far easier to hide our pain and our struggles than to accept that right now, I'm the guy on the mat, and I need help from other people to get to Jesus. I'll be honest with you, church. In the last six months, I've been on the mat many, many times. I will own that in front of you this morning. Um, I struggle with things like fear and discouragement and insecurity, some health issues that leave me feeling like breakthrough is insurmountable. And if we're honest, I think a lot of us would say that we struggle to be the person on the mat. We feel comfortable helping out, but, when, but we end up feeling embarrassed or ashamed to admit when we're floundering. But what happens to the man on the mat if he brushes off his friends when they ask how he's doing, if he needs help? What happens if he just says that he's fine? He misses out on a moment that changes the trajectory of his life. And we miss out on the amazing moment in Scripture that strengthens our faith. Being on the mat requires a defiance against a culture that tells us that we need to project that life is great and our family life is perfect and our job is going swell. And if you need proof, just look at my perfectly curated highlight reel on Instagram. I'm here on this stage preaching this morning because I know that I have people in this room that I reach out to when I'm struggling who will pick up the mat that I'm on when I can't make it on my own. Just last night, Pastor Eric texted me and asked me, how can I pray for you tomorrow? When he did that, he was grabbing a corner of the mat that I was on and carrying it to Jesus. And that's the other half of this equation. I have non-Christian friends and coworkers who don't understand why I spend the amount of time I do being involved in church. They don't understand why it's important for me to be here every Sunday they don't understand why I'm here all weekend during a Holy Spirit conference. And you know what? I can understand where they're coming from. It would be easier not to be here on a consistent basis. And it is easier to think about all the other things I could do or places I could be on a Sunday morning. It'd be easier not to find a place to serve in our church. And it would be easier to save the extra money instead of tithing. But I choose to defy what's easy because I know that the same encounters that I've had in God's presence that have transformed me can transform someone else. And that is something worth fighting for. When you show up to church engaged and ready to go as a participant, you're picking up the mat for someone in that service, desperately needing a touch from God. When you reach out to new people on a Sunday morning or invite people to church, you're picking up the mat by letting them know that this is a safe, loving family that will walk with them in their journey to meet God. When you serve in literally any area of ministry in this church, whether it's prayer on Tuesdays or Club J or greeting or media or anything, you're part of a family that is picking up the mat every week 
for broken people who need Jesus. When you tithe, not only are you picking up the mat for all of the amazing work that this church does, you're literally picking up the mat for people around the world that you may never meet because of the ministries that this church supports. Helping, pe- helping carry people to Jesus is not solely the job of a pastor. It's all of our jobs. The friends in this scripture were not priests. They were ordinary people like you and I. This year, we've been focusing on who is your person. And when you actively seek out and serve your person, you're grabbing hold of the mat of someone that might, not never, that might never meet another person who can help them get to Jesus. So this morning, I want to extend an invitation for defiance to two groups. First, maybe this morning you're feeling paralyzed by something. It could be a physical issue. It could be a mental health issue relationship difficulties, feeling lost in life. Maybe you don't even know Jesus, but you're desperate for something to change. It could be anything at all. And it doesn't matter who you are. This could be your first Sunday here, or you could be one of the leaders in this church. It doesn't matter. We all find ourselves on the mat at some point in time. This morning, I want you to know that there is, uh, that this is being in this place, um, Being in that place of being on the mat is nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. This is a safe place. You won't be judged or looked down on. We are a family whose sole purpose is to help connect people with Jesus. This is literally who we are and why we're here. And more importantly than who we are is who Jesus is. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed in you. He's not punishing you. He loves you. And he's excited to meet you where you're at. (laughs) It's a good thing to search. Uh, (laughs) Siri's telling me to preach. I love it. Um, God loves you, and he's excited to meet you where you're at. As we saw in our text this morning, one moment with Jesus can change everything. And if that's you, I'm going to challenge you this morning to fight to defy the urge to hold back, to be embarrassed, to say, you know what, I need help, but I'm afraid to do that. I challenge you, fight that feeling and come to the front right now. Someone on our team is going to come up beside you and they're going to pray with you. And second, maybe you're here this morning and you are ready to move from being an observer to a participant. Maybe you're ready to join the fight ready to be one of the friends to grab a corner of the mat. And it doesn't matter whether you just started attending or whether you've been coming here for years. Don't let yourself walk out the door today and let yourself off the hook of being accountable to that choice. In the uh, seat pocket ahead of you, in every seat, there's an information card that looks like this. And on the back, it gives opportunities about serving, about information on different things and different ways that you can be plugged in. Fill out that card and get plugged into what we're doing. Join the fight with us uh, and give it to someone uh, on the front row or an usher. I can promise you that it won't be easy, but I can promise you that it's worthwhile. So I'm going to pray. If you're in that situation where you're saying, you know what, I am on the mat this morning. I'm feeling paralyzed by something. While I'm praying, come up to the front. There's going to be someone to pray with you. 
God, I thank you so much.